This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Over There, and the author is Dr. Robert Schoenfeld. And Dr. Bob, as we call him, is joining us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Bob. Hello, Steve. Nice to speak to you. Well, good to have you with us. Now, this is your autobiography with an incredible twist that most people wouldn't ever believe, but it's a true story. Uh, your autobiographical memoir and details challenging and often impossible obstacles that you had to overcome in your quest to become a doctor. Now, most people think of going to medical school, that's hard enough, but in your case, you had to learn new languages. Now, that's probably, most people would have just said, I'm going home. So That's exactly right. So you probably felt that way, didn't you? I was ready to pack it in. I spent, uh, you know, the courses were supposed to be in English. Um, I was accepted, went overseas, and found out they weren't in English, but rather German and French. Uh, I didn't understand the language, could not uh, speak the language. Um, I sat there for several weeks uh, in quite uh, in despair, basically. I was ready to put my tail between my legs and pack it up and take the boat back home. And that's not uh, some disgraceful thing to do. Most people would say, you know, Dr. Bob, you know, we understand. But what was it, do you think, that just said something inside you, just said, well, just hold on? Well, I was told from upperclassmen, the language will come, the language will come. You know, to stick it out and stay there and so forth. Uh, but it didn't happen that way. But uh, there's a strange turn of events which sort of propelled me in a direction to, uh, to increase uh, my perseverance and uh, determination and to stay where I was in a small town in Switzerland, about 30,000 people, uh, which has a large university population. And uh, believe it or not, it was, uh, it was a ball. It was a basketball. A basketball. <laughs> a basketball. <laughs> well, that's something that we wouldn't equate to medical school, that's for sure. But we won't talk a lot about that because we want to leave some of the intrigue in, in the book. And uh, it's fascinating what a basketball did for you. But let's back up. Why was this such a surprise? You'd think you would have known from the start that your classes wouldn't be in English, though you thought they were, right? That's correct. I graduated from Columbia College in New York City, and during my last year at Columbia in 1954, it was a class of 55, um, my senior year, I applied to medical school, and uh, that was the time the Korean War vets had come back on the GI Bill. It was a lot of very tough competition to get into the relatively few slots in the medical schools domestically. I had a tentative um, acceptance. I took a year of graduate work and I applied. I met a, um, a very unusual faculty member, a Dr. Sklar, who I was told about would help get seniors into medical school. I met this gentleman. He was uh, living in a faculty dorm. He was blind. He was a doctor. A doctor of what? I'm not even sure. But we went to, I went to see him and found out that he had a whole host of people coming and going uh, throughout the year, um, helping him. He was blind, and they were doing chores for him around the city, seeing an eye dog living with him. And he told me about a school in Switzerland where the courses were in English. If I didn't come get into a local domestic school to apply overseas, and for, as a lark, I applied. He told me all the courses would be, uh, were to be in English. And uh, I applied and got accepted about six or eight weeks later. I said, well, the course is in English. It's Switzerland. I was told by people that it would probably be the best time in my life to travel to a different country. And I packed up and took the boat and uh, ended up in Switzerland in a town called Fribourg. <clears throat> and uh, to my surprise, uh, the courses were not in English, but rather French and German. And as I said before, I couldn't speak either language. Now, we're talking about 1955, and you just mentioned by boat. Yeah. Wow, what an experience, just that alone, right? Well, that itself is, uh, you know, I, I got to call it my boat. I crossed that ocean <laughs> nine times on that boat, and I had to fly home once for a family emergency. That's all in the book. 
But uh, I got to know that boat pretty well. I got to know all the uh, personnel on that boat because uh, he became a frequent sailor, as they say, with frequent flyer miles. <clears throat> and that was a whole other experience. In fact, the book begins with my last trip home where I thought the boat would get down the middle of the Atlantic. And I had sailed on it at least nine times before. So a very precarious mode of transportation to go to a place that you couldn't understand, and here you're supposed to be going to medical school. So there must have been some real special people once you landed that helped you. Well, you're really on your own. It's like you, me picking you up, Steve, and dropping you into a foreign country where you can't speak and you don't know anything, you can't read the signs, and you have to survive or pack it in and go home. <clears throat> I mean, of course, I met a few classmates of mine. As I said, the, uh, the basketball you know, played a major part in my uh, perseverance, and I met some very colorful uh, you know, classmates and some very colorful uh, professors, uh, medical professors, especially an anatomy professor. <clears throat> who had a very colorful history himself, and um, he was really a key part in the, in the education of many of my classmates and myself. Now, another part of this journey was being in Switzerland, uh, a new culture, obviously the languages you didn't know before, uh, very, very foreign, but at the same time, I'm sure just magnificent. Oh, the, the countryside is, is, is magnificent. Uh, in the book, I, had, I did a lot of photography as a hobby, and I'm still doing it. I had taken pictures, so a lot of this is all documented, including the spectacular scenery that I uh, lived in and traveled through. I mean, it's just, it was like a wonderland. And I think a few people, if anybody, knows that there are palm trees in Switzerland growing. Uh, they, they equate Switzerland with skiing and snow in the Alps, but actually, there are vineyards, there's grapes, there's palm trees in the southern parts of Switzerland. And Switzerland is divided into several areas, the German, Italian, and French. And the whole topography changes, the language, street signs, street signs, um, um, shops, uh, everything is in a different language. So you can travel two or three hours and you're in the Italian part, or two or three hours and everything's in German. Or go toward Lausanne and Geneva and everything's in French. Um, so it was like being in three countries, and yet you're only in one country, which is probably the size of New Jersey, so it's very easy to get around. Of course, they have magnificent transportation systems, and they, it's really the, one of the hubs for all of Europe. So uh, it, was, it, it was just an unbelievable experience, and uh, you know, that's all spelled out in the book. And, of course, in Switzerland, <laughs> you met Ursula. Yes, I met a young lady over there. I call her my Swiss miss. And I became infatuated with her. We became an item over there. And uh, many years later, she had plans to come to the States anyway and go to California. But uh, because of our relationship, she ended up in New York you know, with me, and uh, she eventually became my wife. <clears throat> we have three children and four grandchildren. How long did it take you to really grasp the language? And what kind of uh, what did you have to go through? Uh, you know, I'm sure... From day one, there were a lot of frustrations, but there must have been some kind of encouragement along the way where you started to feel that, hey, maybe I can do this. Well, besides, uh, as I said, basketball played a key part in that, you know, and uh, joining a local team and teammates trying to speak to me only in a foreign language, um, classmates saying to stay in there. What Really, I, what I had to do to survive this successfully really was to learn it twice. I mean, medicine's medicine. I don't care what language it's in. So what I did do is I learned the material in English and then translated it over to either French or German, depending on which courses I was taking. And so that was really learning the material twice. English would have been easy. Um, translating it, I mean, pneumonia is pneumonia, different kinds of pneumonia. The words may be different, but once you know the material, it made it that much easier to do. And that's, I figured that's the only way I was going to survive this. And, of course, the interactions with my teammates and the friends over there, Swiss friends, uh, helped facilitate the language. Now, you have to remember, see, all the exams are oral, one-on-one, -on -one, <clears throat> with a grade recorder observing the uh, festivities in the examination room. You're there <laughs> alone with a professor. The festivities, and, um, yeah. <laughs> Interesting way to call it, uh, a festivity, huh? Well, listen, it was, it was, it was anxiety-provoking and stressful. <laughs> Yet again, it was one of the best times of my life, those six years. Well, you call it your true six-year odyssey and all kinds of life's emotions. 
Give us one of the real challenging moments uh, besides the beginning. There were probably when you first, you know, discovered that English was not being spoken. What were some <laughs> other real challenging moments where, again, you may have looked in the mirror and said, "I don't know if I can do this." I did it as best you can do it. I mean, you you put all everything into it. If you fail uh, two or three exams, you have to take the whole twenty-six over again. And I figured I was going to be as prepared as it was going to be the first go-round. Um, some of the challenging things were if you're taking an exam, never mind the answer, you have to know the question. The guy's asking you a question in a foreign language. And if you don't understand the question, you're not going to even go near an answer. And you can't talk around an answer because you don't have the facility of the language. So either you know the answer or you don't know the answer. And what they did do to make sure you knew what you were talking about, you'd say something in German, and the guy would answer, what, you know, in German, like you're crazy, and repeat that, what, like, what are you talking about? And if you're not sure of yourself, you would, some people would fumble around and change your answer. Uh, but if you know what you're talking about and you persisted, they wanted to see if you knew the language and you knew your material or you just, you know, guessing at things. And that was very difficult. I said, never mind the answer, but you better understand the question. Because if you misunderstand the question, of course, you're not going to go near the answer. Of course, in your life, you have an inspiration to you, your dad. I'm sure your dad, uh, all that he accomplished, you, you probably persevered because you wanted to be like dad. My father was a teacher. He was a professional athlete. He just got to the Hall of Fame in New York City in basketball. There are 40 websites on him. He died very young at 49 years of age. He founded the Officials Association of uh, Basketball Officials for College. He was an outstanding coach, teacher, and one of the best, better pro players in the game in the 1920s and 30s. So he did a lot in a very short time. And how ironic it was that basketball uh, seemed to play such a key part in my medical education. It really, it really kept me there long enough for me to get a grasp on the whole situation. Now, you talk about funny stuff. Now, tell us, you know, give us an example of the <laughs> funny stuff that happened to you. We had uh, you know, someone bringing body parts to our apartments at night to give us special lessons. A group of students on a kitchen table with newspapers and someone coming with a police full of actual body parts. <laughs> um, which, you know, if they opened up on the tram, the guy probably would have been arrested. Uh, we ended up on a food line in Vienna after pulling up there with an old Jaguar getting out and getting on a food line for refugees, not knowing it was a food line, and shuffled along and got soup and bread and people looking at us as we were dressed in sport coats and jackets and so forth, <clears throat> and everyone else was in rags. So it's just, I mean, just things you can't make up, you know, um, I found out I was buying cheese. I was sent to the Hungarian refugees in, in, in Austria and Hungary when the Russians invaded Hungary and had American flags on it. I'm buying black market cheese from a cheese shop. <laughs> and I had a whole to do with the owner about that was illegal. <laughs> I was very idealistic, and I said, that's my cheese from my country to the refugees, and here I am buying on the black market. So, you know, they weren't too happy to see me after that episode. But it goes on and on like that. <clears throat> There are many, many episodes in that book which are just, you have to live it, you can't make the stories up. Now, you had a very interesting tutor for German. <laughs> yes. I hired a 90-year-old school teacher, retired, 90 years old. I was told she was giving English uh, German lessons, <clears throat> and I went over to see her. <clears throat> and she was mentally competent. That was my first thought, you know, she's all there. But we started with really elementary German. You know, where is the ball? The ball's on the table. Table, you know, the ball's under the table. It's like, see Dick run, see Jane run. And after a few weeks of this, I figured when the professor would ask me a question, I can tell him where the hell the ball was. But I don't think he was interested in where the ball was. <laughs> so the lessons had to go. I ended up doing autopsies in Vienna over Christmas. And I sat in the tea room and said, you know, Bing Crosby was on the jukebox. I said, what am I doing here? A hundred miles from the Russian border. Vienna was teeming with Hungarian refugees. I'm in this tea room sipping hot chocolate and spending, spending two weeks doing autopsies. I said, I mean, it, it was that, that, was, uh, that was surreal. I said, you know, you think about it. I said, wow. <laughs> was graduation day a day that you'll never forget? It's not the same over there, Steve. You, know, you, get, you meet the, the uh, dean of the school. He gives you a letter saying you passed your examinations. You have a doctorate in medicine. 
diplomas were forthcoming in the mail. <clears throat> they didn't have big ceremonies like they do in the States. It's a different, it's different education. And very theoretical, not, not very practical as far as procedure-oriented. You had years, and years, we had 18 months of anatomy here. They have maybe six to a year, six months to a year, if that. Uh, so we had 18 months. Started off with clay modeling. So you really had to know what you were doing. You couldn't talk around it. The exams were at the end of the courses. So you couldn't do an examination on chapter one, close it, and three weeks later you forgot what chapter one was. You had to know it all. And you had to know it all at the end. And they, they it was one-on-one with uh, you, and the, you and the professor. And that's it. You either know or you're out. Well, so I really did it. I really did it twice. I did it in English to learn it, and then I did it in the foreign language so I can you know, spit it back to the professors. And it launched a very successful career. I've been very fortunate that we had a very successful. Yes, I'm still I'm still practicing. Well, we re- we really appreciate you sharing this with us, Doctor Bob. Well, you have a I'm website, sorry. I believe. Yes, I do. Um, it's it's www.r. Artintel, A-R-T-I-N-T-E-L dot net. And, of course, we can also get the book through Author House. Yes. yes. And I'm sure any retail uh, Internet outlet, I'm sure we can buy online. Absolutely. And I must add that the book is uh, replete with, uh, there must be at least 100 photographs, and a lot of it is uh, the uh, spectacular scenery that surrounded me during those six years. And they're very interesting pictures, including the palm trees. Well, Dr. Bob, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Well, we appreciate you on the phone, Steve, and I really thank you for your time. That was Dr. Robert Schoenfeld. He is the author of his book, Over There. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, you living the dream like Nina and Cindy? Sweet dreams are made of Were you shocked by the Chuck E. Cheese calamities, diaper dilemmas, and major mom minivan mishaps? Then get ready to share it with Living the Dream Moms with Nina Fry and Cindy Schmitzer, Thursday mornings at 10, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet. And as Nina and Cindy say, if you're thinking it, we're saying it. It's your chance to discuss, share, and learn from two moms who have been there, done that, and yes, they have the t-shirts. And they're for sale at ltdchix.com. Living the Dream Moms is all about all things moms have to deal with daily. Nina and Cindy are two ordinary frazzled moms who admit when they need help and do their best to research and discuss topics that are not always talked about. Living the Dream Moms are just two real women who are discussing the trials and tribulations and triumphs of everyday mom lives. You are not alone. It's Living the Dream Moms with Nina Fry and Cindy Schmitzer. Thursday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Developing a Process for Christian Leaders, Taking a Close Look at How and Where Developing All Begins. And the author is Dr. Johnny J. Boudreau. And Dr. Johnny joins us now on Author Talk. Hello. Hey, how you doing? To introduce your book in general, I'm going to read a few of your statements. You say this, everyone has his or her way of doing things. Some are successful, some are in a work state, and others do not seem to have any idea of what is going on. The success factor is process 
that if not understood will have a person believing that what they accomplished and the procedures done was the reason for the success. Others will attempt to do the same and fail. The question is why? They were never informed of the process. So you have got a uh, really, it looks like an introspective kind of book to better help us understand ourselves and, and how we can be successful. Yes. Now, why did you write this? Why did you write it? Well, I wrote it for the whole lump sum of uh, my experience with uh, academia and um, with the community, with the workplace. Uh, it was based on my familiarity. Uh, I was not a bookman per se, uh, and and when when I keep hearing over and over again after being. Uh, after pastoring, you know, over 27, 28 years, uh, I, I hear people, you do this procedure, you do this, and you're going to get members or you're going to change people's lives. And I discovered that was uh, totally wrong. People must understand what works for others will not work for them. And and, and, and it's, the, it's, the, it's the culture you're with, it's the state of mind you're with, it's the atmosphere, the ambiance of uh, our existence, uh, we need to give it attention because our atmosphere uh, is, uh, has a lot of us in this particular atmosphere. And when I say that, our attitudes will determine our success. Our success don't determine our attitude. <laughs> and, of course, along the way... There's always a lot of opposition. That's because of the attitude. Let me tell you something. If you're an aggressive individual, you're not going to have everyone to be happy, but you will gain respect to some degree and some point. And the idea is not to, to make people hate you. The idea is to get, 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 get people attention uh, to a degree or to a point where when if you get their attention and and you give them what you have uh it might resonate and uh um, begin the process for uh for change yeah you say the purpose of training is to equip leaders in the process to be able to handle the word of god properly the crazy idea that when we accept jesus in our life that it's all we will need. It's just that, a wild idea. It's just a whole lot more than saying, I believe. Exactly. I mean, you know, people believe they accept Christ and everything changed. Wonderful. Everybody's going, everyone is going to be on their side. Everyone is going to follow. Everyone is going to agree with them. Agree with them. And that's, that's absolutely wrong. <laughs> In fact, you actually lift or fill your cup with opposition more than you fill your cup with uh, those that will side with you. Well, remember, heroes have done something that no one else has, and they were criticized, laughed at, and ridiculed while they were in the process. But because of their faith, they saw it through, and guess what? Instead of arguing with them, it, there was no more that they, they could not debate with them anymore so they made them heroes <laughs> how do you change the atmosphere how do you change that atmosphere to the uh to the benefit of the of the leader that not how do you change the atmosphere it's what a lot of people have been trying to do and all you do is just invite christ in see jesus is is the key to all of our atmosphere if he's in the midst, then opposition is always present, but it won't show up as long as you have him in the midst. It'll be all around you. I think Paul says it best. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You know, we, we, we are surrounded, but understand, the devil will always be around looking for a way in. And how you uh, uh, build and create this atmosphere is invite Jesus into your life.
You never cease to be amazed at how so many who say they are followers of Jesus Christ can believe that Jesus has stopped forgiving, healing, and calling leaders into his vineyards when there is so much to do. Yes, you know, let me tell you something. There's a lot of people who call themselves believers, you know, and then and to use that, that word, Christianity, we've made it a, a whole word, but it was really uh, something used as a generic product to describe those fools who were following Christ. And they were first called that in the Antioch, but the Roman soldiers was making fun of them, and that's why the term came. But now, But now, those people who feel... The moment you accept him, everything changed. Uh, his is 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 on the the largest, the, the tallest building in New York, and want to jump down and say they can fly. It just don't happen that simple. You're really focused more on, as you put it, kingdom centered, and not so much just re- being religious. Is that right? No, yeah, religion, 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 religion. Being religious is useless. Christ on the cross said, it is finished. He's declared that everything that he's done is fulfilled. And and the process now is through love. We all have to display that love that that God has, has shown us. And we are left here, the church is left here, to be displayers of that word. It's just simple as that. The church is left here to do just what Christ uh, started and left us in charge of. And that's what we have to do. We have to be grateful to the choice he's made. <laughs> he's the perfect leader. Yes. The exact leader. I mean, I mean, I don't care how, how, how much you... How much? How many procedures you put out? Uh, I don't care how many processes you go through. Uh, let me tell you something. The only one that you can do is uh, follow Jesus. Because I'm gonna tell you something. He will lead you through an attitude of uh, of liberty or choice, and uh, he will make you grateful to to correct others. And let me tell you something. When you're grateful. In correcting others, you'll do it with love. He'll make you grateful for change. When you do that, you put him number one. He'll make you grateful for conversion. And when you do that, you're showing everybody you are changed. You have changed, but not for religious purposes. I'm, I'm changed, and I live uh, in this form of religiousness. But you know, I don't. I don't have to pray three times in the morning, two times at noon, and this, this, this is, he said, men ought to always pray. Why do you say that one of the greatest challenges that we face today as humans is the lack of leadership? That's right. It's too many people are trying to uh, make their paycheck, and they'll do whatever they can to keep people happy, keep the crowd there, and uh, keep... Uh, the money coming in so they can remain on radio, television, and what have you. Sacrifices made uh, are made to please man instead of God. Hmm. Because when you sacrifice uh, to, to please God, you'll always have a clash with man. One of your chapters is titled, The Strange Land Experience. Now give us a little insight in what is in that chapter. Oh, man, listen, uh, you've been to another town, have you? Oh, yes. You don't know the streets? Okay. You don't, you don't, know, you don't know the, uh, uh, the area? Easy the to get lost, right? Easy to get lost. That's right. And let me tell you something. Many of us are in the town that we were, we've been born and reared in, and we are still in a strange land because when you accept Christ, the flow is always, you are always going against the tide. And that's that strange land experience, that darkness, that darkness, and, and, and that darkness uh, comes through during the day. You, 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 
you you don't know what people are thinking. You don't know why they're thinking the way they're doing. You don't know why they're treating you. This, it, it it appears you're in a strange land, and everything is going against you. And 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 and, and, and the Bible tells us plainly that uh, this world is not our friend. But we actually think we're in pleasant ground. We're on pleasant ground. This is a, this is a, until they have that strange land uh, experience, they won't they, they won't understand. Because when you get to the promised land, there won't be but one leader, one judge, and one God. So how but do we? On, huh? Excuse me. So how do we know we are um, making progress when we? Ex- I'm I'm glad, boy. If he was a unsaved man, I'd, I'd say this is awesome. He's just falling into it. When we accept Christ in our lives, Christ enters us into this 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 road to to the new land, and and then our wants and our desires for this land. Uh, I mean, you know, everybody want to be dressed well. Everyone wants money in the bank. Everyone wants night cars. A nice home to live in, but let me tell you something: that 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 place that we are going, uh, we have no idea, but what God says, it is. And then when we start to imagine it, we building two and three story homes and what have you. It's not. It's just going to be a place we just love being in the presence. Of God, and and then you know it's 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 sort of like the the portrayal image that people feel when they get into the presence of athletes and uh, what have you, or LeBrons and uh, and the Boston Celtics and all these folks. They feel that they are in heaven. They 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 take dirty towels. They take uh, dirty uh, uh, trunks and uh, wear what they're wearing just to say, "Hey, look, I have what he was wearing." Let me tell you something. This is strange land worship. So why do you think that leaders are struggling to change the people? What What is it? Because they're caught up into themselves? Yes. You see, the struggle, and, and what, I, what, 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 what uh, the struggle, see, leaders are struggling. In many of us, our struggle in changing people has turned our way and our objectives, rather. Instead of trying to change the people, we didn't deem that impossible, so now we're trying to change God. Now everybody is preaching, everybody is shouting, God is doing a new thing, just because they decided they want to change. God is not doing a new thing, because God said in his own words, I'm God yesterday, today, and forevermore. I'm, I'm not going to change. So if we're going to be the best leaders, we have really, it sounds to me, what you're telling me is that we have just really got to do it God's way and not our way. We've got to put God in it. We have to get, we have to put God in it. Because let me tell you something. We need to understand, when you move, when you move, that, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, I, because I was moved by the, uh, the call of God. And being moved by the call of God you know, it uh, that this book alone it appeals uh, to to uh, why I've wrote it and why I've written it, and that's because I need leaders to to know that the process and the characteristics will bring about opposition. Well, tell us how to get your book, Doctor Boudreaux. Well, you can get the book through uh, Author House, of course, AuthorHouse dot com. You can go there and and. Uh, Check books, and, uh, and of course, you put in uh, the title of this book, Developing a Process for Christian Leaders, and also you can uh, get it through Amazon.com and uh, BarnesandNoble.com. Oh, and uh, and it, and it's in fact, what I'm what I'm uh, looking at, it was it's been it's been uh, leaving there pretty well, and, and I'm I'm glad about that. Well, Doctor Boudreaux, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Okay. That was Dr. Johnny J. Boudreau. He is the author of his book, Developing a Process for Christian Leaders, taking a close look at how and where developing all begins.
You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. If you're not doing what you love, you're wasting your time. So let's rock your genius with Amber Singleton Revere. Join Amber Friday evenings at 8, 7 Central, part of the Her Insight Network on Toginet.com. Rock Your Genius is about helping you discover and rock your own unique genius. By doing so, you'll find greater contentment and success. Through inspiration and conversations with other entrepreneurs and business owners from around the world, we'll show you how to discover what it takes to create a life and business by design rather than default. Check out Amber's websites and businesses at upstartsmart.com and givebackproject.com and, of course, rockyourgenius.com. Her main mission in business is helping entrepreneurs and small business owners learn to survive and thrive through their work. And it all starts with being the truest and best version of yourself and then allowing that to shine through your business. So jump in. It's time to rock your genius with Amber Singleton Revere. Friday evenings at 8, 7 Central, part of the Her Insight Network on toginet.com. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Best Pharmacist, and the author is Ann D. And Ann joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ann. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm going to read a short introduction that you have written concerning your book so everyone can kind of get an overview of what we're going to talk about. You say, this is an intimate story of a pharmacist who by day is a professional counseling patients about drugs and who by night is a full-blown drug addict living a dangerous life among the seedy underbelly of the drug world. Ooh, my goodness. And, but it does have a positive ending, so to speak, because even though you say been a drug addict and I guess once a drug addict, always a drug addict, is that what it is? That is, Steve. That is correct. Addiction is a disease, and I will always have this disease, but I am in recovery, and um, I plan to stay that way just for today. Now, you grew up in a very challenging home. Tell us about what was happening in your home right from the start, right when when you were a very young child. My parents had violent fights. My father was an alcoholic, and my mother was very demanding. And right from the beginning, we grew up in that contentious upbringing. Now, your mother was a perfectionist? Very much so. Nothing ever pleased her we could do the very best which is why the book is called the best the b-e-s-t pharmacist we had to be the superlative at everything we had to be the tallest the prettiest the smartest and when we tried to achieve these goals we were informed that even that wasn't good enough the day i graduated from pharmacy school i presented my degree to my mother And she took one look at it and said, this could have been a medical degree. So at her encouragement, I became a pharmacist, and that wasn't good enough for her. (laughs) My goodness. Now, your father, why did he drink? What, what What was the problem there? My father had the disease of alcoholism. It it's a very strong gene in our family. And he had that disease. And back then, um, when he was growing up, no one spoke of alcoholism as a disease. Even today, it's hard to get people to realize that it is a disease. And, of course, in his time, it was he tried to hide it, and um, he just never got any help. I don't think he knew there was help, Steve. 
I do not think he knew that there was help for alcoholism, that it is a, a disease, because alcoholism is just a specific form of addiction. They're all diseases. They can be treated. And most of us want to get better. We want to get sober. We don't want to take an alcoholic drink or a drug, but we don't know there's help out there. We don't know how to get sober. So through the 12 steps of recovery, that's how you get sober and become happy, joyous, and free. A lot of people would believe that it's a moral weakness, that, uh, you know, why don't you just get over it, right? Why don't you just be responsible? Right, Steve. And I'm sure when I was in the fourth grade and my teacher asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up, I'm pretty darn sure I didn't say I want to be an addict. It's something that has nothing to do with morality, being weak-willed. It is a mental disease. Let me reiterate, it is a mental disease. The disease starts in the brain, so that's where your recovery has to start. Now you talk about... Go ahead, I'm sorry. You talk about your father as being a really funny guy, a fun-loving guy, obviously, when he wasn't drunk. He had the greatest personality in the world. People were, were drawn to him. He was the life of the party until he had too much to drink. With me, it was um, with taking the first drink, he became very mean to me. And let me tell you why. I did not know this until I was in 12 steps of recovery and practicing it. But he saw in me the isms or alcoholic traits that he hated in himself. Therefore, he hated me. When he looked at me, it was like looking in the mirror. He saw, you know, a mirror image of himself. He did not like himself, and therefore he did not like me. And that perpetuated itself in beatings and verbal abuse. And um, as you may have read, I had to leave home when I was in the seventh grade and go live with my grandparents. When did you realize that you had a problem? I think the last year of my addiction when I was using and when I would try to stop I would try to quit taking drugs, and I would just lay on the floor with my legs flailing, which is why they call it kicking the habit, by the way. Or I would, you know, vomit or feel like I was almost going to have convulsions. I think I knew then that I had a problem. I had a monkey on my back, and I couldn't get it off. And... As far as I knew, there was no way for me to get that monkey off my back except through death. And I think that's why several times, you know, I overdosed on drugs, and it was just by the grace of God that I'm here. How old were you when you started drinking or taking drugs? My first drink was when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and... From that first drink, I instantly fell in love. It was such a warm, tingling feeling going through my body. It was just magic. And um, I did not start taking drugs until I was a pharmacist, until it was easy access, until I realized that you could take as many drugs as you wanted to and not have that hangover the next day. So you, of course were successful in high school would you say oh yes as i told you we had to make straight a's we had to be a part of all the activities yeah i left high school in the 11th grade to attend college because my grades were so good did your mother ever know that you were an alcoholic at a young age no my mother never knew about the alcoholism now, I'm you, sure she knew I drank, but I don't think she thought it was a problem because I maintained good grades. I maintained appearances. I did everything she wanted me to do. And that's what a lot of people do, correct? They maintain exactly. appearances and maintain at the job or in school, and nobody knows. And you call that a functioning alcoholic. 
But still an alcoholic. But still an alcoholic. Why is it so hard to admit that I'm an alcoholic? Why, why is it so difficult for a person to say that and admit it and know that they need help? Well, Steve, I think it's because none of us want to admit that we're flawed. None of us want to admit that there's something inherently wrong with us. And um, when you find out that it's a mental disease, then you really find out why you didn't want to admit it in the first place, because it is mental. And nobody wants to be told they have a mental disease. Now, as a pharmacist, you were stealing drugs. How could you not know that you would eventually be caught? At the end of my addiction, I think I wanted to be caught, Steve. I I told you, I wanted help. I just didn't know how to get it. I couldn't imagine living one day of my life without that feeling of a drug. But looking back, I think I wanted to get caught. I knew there were cameras in that pharmacy. So I wanted to get caught. I wanted the help. I just didn't know how to get it. Once again, I did not know that... I had a disease. That was 10 years ago, and you still did not hear about it. You don't hear about it today, that addiction is a disease. You hear plenty of people like Bill O'Reilly on TV saying that it isn't the disease and we're despicable human beings, but that's not true. Once again, the answer is in educating the public. They have to quit seeing us as homeless people drinking out of brown bags living under bridges. We're everywhere. We pervade 10% of the American adult population. Very successful people are, are drug addicts, alcoholics. Very successful people. As a matter of fact, I read a study one time that most addicts have high IQs. We just do dumb things. We have um, doctors, lawyers, physicists, um, nurses. We have lots of people in the 12-step program of recovery. I assure you that. So here you are, a pharmacist, stealing drugs, supplying your habit, wanting to get caught or wanting to get somehow get help, maybe not consciously thinking that. Tell us what happened. What happened was... I was at home one day getting high, like I usually do, and my husband calls, and he says, get up, get a shower, you're going to be arrested in 20 minutes. He said that uh, the pharmacy where I was working had me on film stealing drugs, and that DHEC, which is our Department of Health and Environmental environmental control, a part of law enforcement, was going to be at my door in 20 minutes to arrest me. And true to his word, they showed up and arrested me, and I went to jail. And um, as I said, the judge gave me a choice. He said, you can either go to rehab or you can go back to jail. And so I chose rehab, and it was the best decision I ever made. Why is the 12-step program so critical to helping uh, an addict, drug, or alcoholic uh, to have a a somewhat of a normal life? The 12-step program teaches you how to kill your ego and children of ego. By that, I mean, mean suspicion, jealousy, resentment, anger, all of that. By working the 12 steps, you develop humility, and it is only by humility that you get sober. Really, the 12-step program is about teaching you to be a better human being. It really is. A byproduct of that is that you don't want to drink and drug anymore. If you just get sober and don't get sober-minded, by that I mean you don't work the 12 steps and get rid of all your anger, resentment, and all hostility, you will be a miserable human being. You will be sober, but you will not be sober-minded. You will be miserable. 
the key then is that sober-minded. You have to really think it. You have to really believe it. As I said, your addiction is a mental disease. It starts in your mind, and that's where your recovery has to start. And that's where it has to stay. Now, you've also had a great challenge with cancer. I did, and it's, you know, Steve, it's only by the 12-step program that I have handled having ovarian cancer so positively. Um, They really need to teach the 12-step program to cancer patients because it's really out of our control. I've turned it over to my higher power. Um, I work the 12 steps as often as I can, and it has just helped me deal with this ovarian cancer. And as you know, ovarian cancer is the silent killer because by the time you present with symptoms, it's usually all over your body. 15,000 women die of ovarian cancer every year in this country, and it's really ridiculous because there's a simple test that will help cut that number down significantly, but our OBGYNs don't even give that test. So for the last 10 years, you've stayed sober, and now you're you're even cancer-free. Yes, for today I am. You know, when you have cancer, you live from checkup to checkup. So until my next checkup, I'm (laughs) cancer-free. Well, any closing thoughts you'd like to leave with us, Anne? This is the most important thing I could say today. Addiction is a disease. Alcoholism is a disease. There is help. There is no cure, but there is a process that you can go through to recover through the 12 steps. That is the most important thing I can say. It has nothing to do with being weak-willed or morally corrupt or anything like that. It is a mental disease, and we have to educate our public. Our government has done a horrible job in doing so. But we have to do it. We have to educate the public about this disease. And tell us how to get your book. book is available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, um, just any of those places. And, of course, through Author House. Author House, especially. I love Author House. Those people are great. Well, Anne, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Thank you for having me, Steve. You have been a pleasure. That was Anne D., She is the author of her book, The Best Pharmacist 